Welcome to Make Me Your Voice with Pastor David Bartowell. These messages are intended to deepen your faith and trust in a living God who speaks to us with hope and reason. Today's message comes to us from the Gate Christian Bible Church in Orange County, California. Good morning. I read this incredible story of deliverance and it just blew my mind. Stanley Pramnath was a vice president at Fuji Bank, and he was in the office at the South Tower at the World Trade Center, and his phone rang. And he picked up the phone, and the lady was saying, are you watching the news? He said, are you all right? And he said, I'm fine. What's going on? He didn't know why she called. And then he turned and gazed out the window to see over the Statue of Liberty a jet flying into the tower where he was in. And he dropped the phone in mid-sentence, and he dove to the floor, and he curled under his desk, and he began to pray, Lord, help me. Please help me. And the jet crashed, and he could smell jet fuel all over the place. And equipment was scattered all over, and he was lying there in the dust and the rubble. And he began calling his way out, and he said, Lord, please allow me to go home to my family and to see my daughters. Then he said, just then I saw a light. And the voice and the others with the light said, I'm here to help you. And he thought, man, this is my guardian angel. The Lord sent somebody to help me. His guardian angel, was uh, his name was Brian Clark. He was a Christian, and he worked as an executive three floors below, and the two miraculously climbed out to safety that day. Pranmath stated, my Lord had some unfinished business for me. He took the tattered clothes. This is incredible. He took the tattered clothes he was wearing, he put them in a box, and on top of the box, in big letters, he wrote, Deliverance. And he told his wife, if I ever get spiritually cold, I want you to bring this box to me, open it up, and to remind me what God delivered me from. Have you forgotten what God has delivered you from? I mean, think about the cause of the cross at Calvary and what Jesus did for you and for me. That's our rescue. And I want us to remember our rescue. God wants us to remember our rescue. In fact, this what we're going to look at today. God tells Israel, never forget how I rescued you, the God who rescues. And we're in Exodus. We're going to go through 10 chapters in 10 days. So get ready. Just pack up and we're going to stay here for a while. No, I'm just kidding. No, we're going to spend most of the time in the actual Exodus in 13 and 14, but we're going to build up to there because there's a progression that God does. So the God who rescues, these are the, some of the key verses, Exodus 6.6, 6, where God says, say to the sons of Israel, he's telling Moses, says, tell them I am the Lord. Now, remember a capital letter, Lord, what is that word? What is that name? Yahweh, right? And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. And then the next verse, Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. That's a covenant. And he's going to refer to them as the sons of Israel. So the God of heaven, the one that created Yahweh, the Lord, adopts and brings Israel as part of his family, and he becomes their father. He says, you shall know that I am the Lord, Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now, last week, remember, we spent a lot of time talking about Yahweh and how God revealed himself to Moses 
and told him what that name means. In two words, how do we sum it up? I am, right? He says, tell Israel, I am sent you. And it's a continuous I am. There's no beginning, no end. He's just continuously being himself. And he doesn't need anything outside himself to make him perfect and sufficient. Unlike us, right? We need outside help. God doesn't. But yet he chooses to use us to do his work. And that's what he's doing with Israel. His name will always be remembered now as the God who delivered and rescued Israel from Egypt. Now, there's a progression of events. The first thing that happens is we have the ten plagues, God's wrath. So let's review real quick. How was Moses saved from death from Pharaoh? In the water, right? In the Nile. And remember, Moses' name means drawn from water. And in a minute, we're going to see him walk through water. God prepared Moses by having him in the best schools. He was living in the best place in the palace. How did God choose to get Moses' attention? Remember, Moses is tending his sheep. In Midian, a bush becomes inflamed, but the flame doesn't consume the bush. And Moses says, wow, what's going on? So he walks over there, and God speaks to him. And then Moses listens to what God says, and God says, I'm going to use you to deliver my people out of Egypt. Part of what God's plan included was judgment. Because he says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. The expression outstretched arm is commonly used for judgments and God's power. God's judgment of Egypt would progress through 10 plagues. The Egyptian magicians were able to imitate some of the plagues, but not all of them. So we have 10 plagues, and they increase in severity. So the water turns to blood. Frogs, it's interesting. Frogs were very prevalent near the Nile River, but it's cool if they're like in the Nile River, not in your bed and all in your oven and in your food. That's not good. Gnats, it also could be, word can be lice. Flies, and the disease on the livestock, obviously that took a big toll in their agriculture and their food and everything. And then it got personal with the boils and then the hail and fire. Because all this time, Pharaoh's heart is hardening and hardening. And then we have locusts and then darkness. And then the worst of all, the death of the firstborn, which leads into the Passover as a remembrance. So the Egyptians had magicians, their sorcerers, and the Egyptians had their own gods. For some reason, they were able to um, imitate some of the plagues, only the two at the beginning. But why is that? They worshiped false gods. Who's behind those types of gods? Satan. What does the Bible say that sometimes he masquerades himself as? Angel of light. So it's very important to understand Satan is not obviously sovereign and Satan is not God. Satan is a created being, but he does have certain powers. He does use people. I mean, obviously we see Egypt with Pharaoh and we see evil. We see evil killing the people of Israel. We see that today. We saw it in the Holocaust. It's the same thing over and over that Satan wants to get rid of anything that has to do with God. 
God's people mostly he wants to get rid of. So in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, we see a successive progression of God's judgments, some similar to these, all with the focus of getting people's attention. And we have to see this here as God, even though he's judging Egypt, he's also trying to get Pharaoh's attention so that he would repent. I mean, that's the whole point of Revelation when it gets worse and worse and worse. And sadly, we read the people wouldn't repent. They actually mock God even more. So that's how hard the heart can be. But with regard to Pharaoh, his heart got harder with each judgment. We see here in Exodus 70, it says, I, the Lord, will harden Pharaoh's heart, that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. So why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? was for his glory to multiply his power and glory so that all Egypt could see that. Then in Exodus 4.21, we read, The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I put you in power, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the people go. But we also see Pharaoh hardening his own heart in Exodus 8.15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And did not listen to them as the Lord says. So what's going on? There's two types of hardening of hearts. God is hardening and Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. And by the way, this hardened heart thing in Exodus occurs 27 times. So it's a big issue of theology. Like, why is this happening? Why is God hardening Pharaoh's heart? And how is Pharaoh hardening his own heart? Have you ever wondered why a certain person that you maybe have been witnessing to or sharing the gospel, and it just seems that they're not getting it. And then over time, they get very hostile. You see this a lot, right? And that's what's going on. The heart is hardening towards the gospel. Philip Graham, he has a commentary. He writes, one of the mysteries of God's sovereignty is that he hardens people in their sins, thereby condemning them to their own depravity, which is exactly what happened to Pharaoh. It's Pharaoh's depravity. God is not depraved. But there's something going on. He also writes this. He hardened his own heart, nevertheless. God hardened his heart for him. Both of these statements are true, and there's no contradiction between them. This is important. Pharaoh's will was also God's will. God not only knew that Pharaoh would refuse to let his people go, but he actually ordained it. This is the paradox of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, which is not a puzzle to be solved, but a mystery to be adored. It's the sovereign control and providence of God that is doing this. Pharaoh's heart gets harder so that God's will would be done. This is an interesting thing to think about. Now, does this mean that Pharaoh had no choice? No, of course not. We're not robots. In fact, the Bible is very clear that everyone has a choice to repent. In 2 Peter 3, 9, read it with me. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but his patience toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know, there's some people who will try to diminish the sovereignty of God because it's uncomfortable. But we can't do that. If God is sovereign in control, that means he's sovereign over all things. P. 
Peter and says, the deliverance of Israel from Egypt is entirely God's doing and under his complete control. Did Israel do anything except afterwards they complained a lot and they complained before and God heard their but they couldn't get themselves out of this. The impending exodus is a play in which God is author, producer, director, and principal actor. And we got to get that. Because there's two types of theology. There's God-centered and man-centered. We never want to have a man-centered theology because then it becomes about us. We want to have a God-centered theology because it's about him. So God hardened his heart, but people hardened their own hearts. When Jesus was speaking to the religious leaders, they hated Jesus. They despised him. He was some rogue figure that was trying to take away their temple and their land. That's what they were talking about. And then take away their people. They were calling the temple theirs. They were calling the land theirs. They were calling the people theirs. That's man-centered theology. So Jesus does all these miracles. They start to associate Jesus' miracles as from Satan. And we get to Luke 10. An incredible thing happens. Jesus turns to all the people, but he's pointing this at the religious leaders who just blaspheme the Lord by saying that Jesus' miracles are of Satan. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. How is that? Well, the Son of Man usually is a term that associates with Jesus' humanness. So people all the time are mocking him, right? But they're not condemned in their sin unless they reject him totally. Go anywhere and you hear the Lord's name used in vain. If, if that's what would condemn them eternally, we're, you know, we're not, you know, I was going to say the word, but we're not in a good place. <laughs> but Jesus says, anyone who speaks the word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But here's the thing. The one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven because the Holy Spirit is God himself. And when one's heart hardens, when a person's heart gets hard, you are in a place that if you don't allow the Holy Spirit to work, you can continue to get harder and harder and harder. And that's why David said, create in me a clean heart. You know, a soft heart. Give me a soft heart for you, Lord. And that's why we want that kind of humility. And here's the worst part of it. I think this is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Romans 1.24. It says, Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. He said, you want that so bad? Here. And that's what happens when people reject the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their heart gets harder but then eventually their depraved mind becomes so depraved and their activity so depraved. Do you know that outside of God's grace, we would sink to a depravity that would make you sick? And we see it happening. It makes me sick. And yes, we should love these people and share the gospel, but you should never look at it and go, oh, that's okay. It's sickening. It's sickening the depravity that our hearts can lead us to. Now, we are currently living in a type of exodus period. That's why I'm going through these progressions, because I want you to see 
that we are living in a time where there will come impending judgment. And God is giving everyone a way out, a way to be rescued and saved. And the Bible says anyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. But there will come a day when there will be a final judgment and there will be eternal death. But no one has to experience that because there's a way out. It's to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. But you got to be rescued by water, which is baptism in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. And at that moment, you receive the living waters, which is the Holy Spirit. In the future, there will be a rapture and we will be rescued from this world, snatched out, caught up. There's a picture not only of what's happening with Israel, but what will happen with the church. In Exodus 11, 9-10, says, The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Why? So that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. God wanted to get Egypt's attention so they would repent. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, yet the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. So that's the sovereign control of God that he's doing all this so that he would rescue them and get all the glory. Next is a God's memoriam. We're building up to the Exodus. We have God's wrath. Now God tells the people of Israel to remember what's happening. So in Exodus 12, it says God tells Moses to tell the congregation to slaughter an unblemished lamb, a male lamb, and put the blood over the what? The doorposts of your homes and the blood shall be a sign. And when I see the blood on the doorpost, I will pass over your house. That's Passover. That's in Exodus 12, and that's God building up to them. Now, did Jesus follow Passover? Yes, of course he did. In fact, it was at that Passover service, that meal, where Jesus revealed to them that he is the one that was spoken about, that the blood of the lamb would be his. And what does he say to do? Do this in what? Remembrance of me. So every time we need to remember our rescue, and that's why we do the Lord's Supper once a month, so that we don't forget what God did for us. And we'll have that next week. There's two ordinances that God said to do as New Testament believers. One's the Lord's Supper, and what's the other one? Baptism, right? What do those two things have in common? Turn your Bible to Exodus 12. I'm going to start in verse 42 of Exodus 12. So it says, It is a night to be observed for the Lord, for having brought them out from the land of Egypt. This night is for the Lord, to observe by all the sons of Israel throughout their generations. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigners is to eat of it, but every man's slave purchased with money after you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. A sojourner or a hired servant shall not eat of it. It is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. All the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this. But if a stranger sojourns with you, 
and celebrates the Passover to the Lord. Let all his males be circumcised and then let him come near to celebrate it. And he shall be like a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person may eat of it. The same law shall apply to the native as to the stranger who sojourns among you. Then all the sons of Israel did so. They did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on the same day, the Lord brought the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. Now let's focus on these two verses, Exodus 12, 47 and 48. All the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this. Who's to celebrate the Passover? Israel. But God goes on. But if a stranger sojourns with you or travels with you and celebrates the Passover of the Lord, let all his males be circumcised and then let him come near to celebrate it and he shall be like a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person may eat of it. What's going on here? The Passover is for Israel. If there are Gentiles or others that want to be a part of it, they have to become a part of Israel, which involves circumcision which was a symbol of being cut off from the world. Now, how is a New Testament believer circumcised? How? In the heart, right? The Holy Spirit, when he comes into our heart, into our life, we are circumcised, we're cut off. And in fact, the Holy Spirit is a deposit, as a guarantee of our future deliverance. There's two verses In Exodus 4, that if you didn't think about him, you would just skip right over and go, what the heck's going on? Did you know that God tried to kill Moses? Did you know this? Keep your finger there in 12, but turn to chapter 4, 24, 25, and 26. It says, Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met Moses and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin, and threw it at Moses' feet, and she said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he led him alone. And at that time, she said, You are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. What the heck is going on? Here's what we can surmise from this. Apparently, Moses did not circumcise his son as he should have. When was circumcision initiated? In Genesis, right? With Abraham. So Moses didn't do it. And due to the severity and holiness of God's calling on Moses' life, God was angry enough to kill Moses. See, circumcision was the physical sign of the faith of God's people. Every male that was eight days old should be circumcised as a symbol of being cut off from the world. But if they weren't circumcised, God said they would be cut off from my people. So Moses was probably trying to avoid this. And so who took the matter into her own hands? His wife, who happened to have a knife, which is a weird kind of concerning thing. But now she was a Midianite. The Midians, remember, were one of the sons of Abraham, but with another wife after Sarah. She takes the matters into her own hands. She circumcises her son and throws the down at Moses' feet in disgust. Here's the thing. Men... You need to step up. I mean, Moses should have done what he should have done. I've run into families a lot of times. I'll meet the wife, the mother. Where's your husband? Oh, oh, he sent me to go find a church or, you know, he sent me to go check it out like some scout, you know. (laughs) And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that's wrong. But if the husband and the man is the spiritual head of the family, 
Shouldn't he be on top of this type of thing and leading the family instead of letting the wife handle all the roles? It's a team. It's a partnership. Everybody should do what they're supposed to do. Moses didn't do it. And God wanted to kill him because Moses was called for a way high calling as we are. Now, thank God we're not saved by physical circumcision or any of those physical type of things. We're saved by faith. But if we're not teaching our kids, if we're not putting God first in our family, it is kind of disgusting, especially as Christians, as people who claim to be Christ followers. That's an important lesson that we need to raise up our kids as we see in the beauty of this is that these kids, they don't even know it yet, but they're never going to forget this. I wish I had this. I wish I had this. We need to be promoting this. We need to say, you know what, we're a family church and we care about your kids and we want them to grow up in the Lord. And one of the reasons why we keep the kids in here during the music, because it's a wonderful time to have them with the rest of the church. If they don't know the rest of the church, then it's not their own church. We need to do that with the junior high and high school. We don't want them disconnected. This is part of our calling. This is what makes us different. Some people don't get it or they won't feel comfortable and that type of thing. But I think over time you can see the fruit, right? Just keep that in mind. Now back to Passover. This special holiday would mark the beginning of Israel's calendar and it would point to the greatest sacrifice of all. In John 1.29 where John the Baptist says, read it with me, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's Jesus. Next part, we have God's preparation. So he prepares Israel to leave the land. And one of the things he tells them is to cook unleavened bread because they weren't going to have time to cook the bread. So they had to have this unleavened bread. And Exodus 12, 39 says, They baked the dough which they had brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread, for it had not become leavened since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. This would become another important holiday and ordinance for Israel. It says in Exodus 12, 17, You shall also observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. Now what's God doing? He's building a legacy for generations. There should be a legacy, a generational legacy that should be happening but it all has to do with remembering what God did. So Jesus and his disciples kept this ordinance. In Matthew 26, it says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? So that's an important holiday. And then the consecration of the firstborn, it's all building up to the Exodus. God prepares the family for deliverance. This is important. Exodus 13, 2. God says, sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both man and animal. It belongs to me. Now, why? Because the angel of death is about to take the firstborn sons and the firstborn of the cattle of Egypt as the final judgment. And so God is reminding Israel the salvation and to remember it with the Passover, but also to remember it with offering your firstborn son, to the Lord. Later, the Levites would take this responsibility of priests. But isn't it important to offer your kids to the Lord? 
and to pray that they've served the Lord and your grandkids? So the story of salvation would be passed on through the firstborn son, assuming that the father would tell the story to the son. That's why God says, it shall be when your sons ask you, what do you say? You shall say, with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And you should say that to your kids and your grandkids. God brought me out of death and sin and slavery. And he rescued me. And he wants to rescue you. And then it's also a picture of redemption. It came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go. So he came, tell him more, that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of the animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem because it's the sons of Israel, the people of Israel that God would redeem. Now, do you know that we are redeemed? Ephesians 1, 7, read it with me. In him, Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. We have redemption, but we need to tell others about it. So now we're up to the finding yourself in the story. The Lord leads his people to deliverance. We're actually now at Exodus 13. We're going to go through the Exodus story real quick. First of all, the Lord is the one who leads you. Okay, that's important to understand. God is in control. Remember I said last week, if God isn't Lord of all, he isn't Lord at all. So have you ever wondered, Lord, have you forgotten me? And what's taking so long? Well, think about Israel, because they were in Egypt for how many years? 400 years. And then God delivers them and takes them the long way. But Exodus 13, 17 says, Now when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, which was shorter. Why? Because God said the people might change their minds when they see the war and return to Egypt. This is an ongoing theme now, that even as bad as it was in Egypt, God knew their hearts and didn't take them the short way because they would see war and run. Israel kept wanting to go back. And I don't hear from people who've ever been incarcerated or Holocaust survivors or people who are in concentration camps ever say, man, I wish I could go back to that. I never hear that. But we often say, oh, man, you know, I miss those days. You know, we were in Egypt getting whipped with my buddy. You know, I got to go back there. Why do we want to go back? Because we forgot our rescue. We need to remember it. Turn to uh, Exodus 13, and then we're starting in verse 17. Now when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. I heard this said, it took one night to take Israel out of Egypt, but 40 years to take Egypt out of Israel. Hence, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea, and the sons of Israel went up in martial array or military formation from the land of Egypt. Moses took the bones of Joseph. Why did he do that? Anyone know? Because Joseph asked his family, when you get out of here, please take me. Why? Because he wanted to go to the promised land. So they're carrying around Joseph's bones, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. 
Then they set out from Succoth and camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day, led them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they may travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of night from before the people because God is caring for his people. And this is a picture of his guidance and his assurance, which we get from the light in the word, the word of God. Jesus is the light. Next, the Lord is the one who speaks to you. The Lord is the one who speaks to you. So this is where Moses, the prophet, comes in and he speaks on behalf of God. And in Exodus 14, 1 through 2, it says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp. So what is he saying? Change course. Turn back. A lot of times when we're going through the word of the Lord, we read and we go, Oh, wow, God's telling me to change course. I'm heading the wrong direction. Problem is, we don't often do that. You know, there's two types of prophecy. There's the prophecy that's foretelling. The Old Testament prophets told of a time in the future. But there's also a type of prophecy called forthtelling. What's that? Well, that's the preaching of the word. Proclaiming forth what God says. That's what my role as the pastor of this church and the under-shepherd to Jesus is to feed the sheep, to preach and teach the word. Sometimes God is telling us to change course, like a year ago when he made it blatantly obvious that we were not supposed to stay where we were. And a lot of us get real uncomfortable I just got an email yesterday saying that the storage place where we store our stuff is closing down. We have like a month to find another place. I'm like, oh man, that's the last thing I got to do. But God's moving us. I don't know what's happening, but this is not our final destination. Like Joseph knew that, right? It's like, take my bones. But we don't want to take your bones. (laughs) We want to take your body alive and go. If God isn't allowed to speak through his word, we get hard-hearted, and we don't want to change course, but it's part of God's plan. So now we're going to read chapter 14, where we left off. I'm going to start in verse 1. Now, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Pihahoriath, between Migdal and the sea. You shall camp in the front of Baal Zephon, opposite it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, They are wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them. What is God saying here? God doing? He's drawing Egypt right into his trap. Because he's going to say, Pharaoh's thinking, oh man, they're just lost in the wilderness. Going on, thus I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Verse 5, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart toward the people, and they said, what have we done? They're like our economy. That's how we make money, by enslaving them. So we need to go get them. So he took his chariot ready and took his people with him, and he took 600 select chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he chased after the sons of Israel. So it's all for his purpose. 
Then the Egyptians chased after them with all the horses and the chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen, and his army, and they overtook them, camping by the sea beside Pihahoriath, in front of Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord, and then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves, Moses, in Egypt, that you took us to die in the wilderness? Why are you dealing with this way by bringing us out of Egypt? They already forgot, and they want to go back because they're not safe in the desert, only in Egypt. Is this not the word that we spoke to you, Egypt, saying, leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? They didn't say that, for it would even be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. They're making a movie in their own mind, which is what we do. So leadership can be difficult especially when you have stubborn sheep, people who are like always complaining. We're going to talk about more about murmuring people next week. But it's a difficult task Moses had. Next, the Lord is the one who fights for you. The Lord is the one who fights for you. And so we're continuing here in verse 13. So Moses, now he's going to stand up in the midst of that. That's hard. He's hearing all this negative feedback, and he's going to stand up in faith. And he said to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which will he accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again. The Lord will fight for you, which, by the way, that's the meaning of Israel, the name Israel. The Lord fights for you while you keep silent. Okay, this is an important thing to learn. It's really hard for many of us to be silent, especially when things aren't going our way. I'll never forget when things were really going bad at another ministry, another church a long time ago. And I just said, Lord, I just want to go and leave. Please send me somewhere else. And he said, I'm fighting the battle. You be silent. I fight for you. And he did. But it was a year of hearing accusations and negativity and lies and slander all this stuff, and I'm like, God, I want to say something. Do you know who God sent to speak for me? My wife. And she kicked some you-know-what. She's not, you're not going to treat my husband that way. But the point here is that God does way better at fighting than we do. Let him do it. So in verse 15, And the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. So when God spoke, remember to Moses, when God spoke to Moses, he was speaking to everyone through him. And he said, yeah, I'm going to fight for you, but don't just sit there. It's time to do your part, congregation. It's time to get up and move and keep going because this camp is not our destination. It's not. God is moving us. We got to put feet not to your prayers, but to God's answers. And when God answers, we go. We don't sit there and just keep praying. Praying is good. We should pray, but we should act in faith too. So verse 16, as for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. So what's the staff represents? a symbol of uh, leadership, authority, uh, the shepherd would guide his sheep with a, a staff. And Moses was the shepherd of God's people. 
And he was given authority by God to lead his people. And this was not Moses' staff, it was God's. And as long as Moses remembered that, everything was cool. This is my staff. This is your staff. This is God's authority. This is his word. And we hold it with confidence. And even though the magicians try to do their little fake prophecies and their false teaching, we stick to the authority in the staff of God, in the word of God. We don't sway. We're not of this world. We're cut off. The staff is a symbol of authority. And then verse 17 through 20. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army through his chariots. And then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. Next, the Lord is the one who saves you. And this is the culmination, starting in verse 21. I'm just going to read through this, and we're going to see the deliverance of the Lord. But it's all building up, remember? It's all building up. Then Moses stretched out his hand, Over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of Egyptians into confusion. Don't you love it when he confuses the enemy? You see it all over the place. Now look at these verbs. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve. He made them drive with difficulty. Isn't God way better at this? So the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel. And they finally get it. For the Lord is fighting for them against us. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. The Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained, but the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on the right and on the left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. Then Israel saw that the Egyptians were dead on the seashore, just like Moses said. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Doesn't God do a great job of delivering people? So what's your response? Praise. And that's in Exodus 15. We're not going to go through the whole thing. But the whole culmination builds up to this. And what does Israel do? They praise him. Because after you're rescued, you should praise him. So Exodus 15:1. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang the song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. Now stand and praise with me. We're going to read these together. Okay, stand up. We're going to read these like we have just been rescued. You have just been rescued from death and sin. And what do you say? Exodus 15, 2. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. 
my father's God and I will exalt him. Then the next verse, the Lord Yahweh is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And the next verse, your hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your hand, O Lord, showers the enemy. Then the next verse, who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? And the next verse, the Lord shall reign forever. Now, we're going to praise him for our exodus, and we're going to go to Revelation. Read it. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And then Revelation 7. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Blessings and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns forever and above with wisdom. Power and love, our God is an awesome God. Again, our God is an awesome God. He reigns forever and above with wisdom, power and love. Our God is an awesome God. Amen. <laughs> Hallelujah. Praise God. Pastor David Bartowell's message reminds us that God speaks to us with hope and reason so that we can be his voice in this world. Please join us again for Make Me Your Voice, a ministry of the Gate Christian Bible Church in Orange County, California. We would love to have you visit if you're in the area. For more information or to find our location, please visit thegateoc.com.